0: Welcome to The Theology Podcast. The band is back together again. It's just us guys today, and uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We've got a great topic, but before we get to it, let's uh, do the round the horn, so to speak. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I've written a number of things. And uh, my latest
1: book is In the House of Tom Bombadil. Okay, Glenn. Glenn Sunshine, retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, ministry-associated Reflections Ministries, where I'm doing a great deal of writing and editing right now, Um, freelance uh, speaker, teacher, bunch of other things. So
0: that's me. Got it. Got it. So, Tom, introduce yourself, and before you get to the topic, we have an announcement. So, Once you're done introducing yourself, it'll come back to me and I've got something to share with the folks out there in podcast land.
2: Okay. So you have to wait for the the topic. (laughs) This is Tom Price. I teach uh, Christian thought at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. That's theology, that's ethics, philosophy. And I teach a few other places and I'm working on a bunch of things. So with that said, I'll throw it back over to Chris with a big announcement. Okay.
0: Well, the announcement is this. The podcast is going to Oxford uh, in the United Kingdom. We are really uh, quite pleased that we have a major donor who has um, made a significant gift. It doesn't pay for the whole trip and all the things that will be connected to it, but it takes us probably about halfway there. And uh, it's going to be in late May going to be in the range of like uh, May 20th to May 29th. It'll be during that period of time that we'll be there. We've got a lot of things to to, uh, work out, including uh, locations that we're going to be recording podcasts and so forth. And there's also going to be uh, footage for a documentary that we're going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, having done as well. So a lot of fun, a lot of things in the works. Uh, As guests and locations uh, are firmed up, we'll be back to tell you about those things. But we wanted to put this little seed in your mind right now uh, because we're going to need to do some more fundraising to pay for, you know, the rest of the costs that we are anticipating. And if you'd like to be a part of that, Uh, We'd really appreciate it. This is something quite distinct from Patreon. Uh, We'll probably do another Kickstarter. We haven't done a Kickstarter in a couple years, and we've had great success with those in the past. But uh, we'll let you know more about those in the days ahead. If there's uh, a podcast listener in the UK who would like to connect with us about this, that would be great. We'd love to have some folks uh, that we could could, uh, connect with over there who are regular listeners. So please let us know if this is something that uh, interests you and you're in the UK. All right. Well, Tom, tell us about what we're talking about today.
2: Okay. And it's probably just as much of a surprise to both of you since I came on the topic pretty (laughs) late. Um, Well, before the topic, I'll, I'll kind of walk my way into it by way of my interest in it. I've been working on a few projects. One of these has been engaging interpretations of the human being that are challenges to Christians in this current time, especially the things that our children will be having to deal with. And so really getting a thorough understanding of what is going on, what the commitments are, the his, what the history is, and how to engage it from classic Christian riches, if you will. And so I found that there was a symposium, and I don't have the dates on it at the moment, but it was recently because this these were just published this month month the the kind of excerpts of it, in a, a somewhat Catholic liberal periodical, if you will, Commonweal. Oh, sure, I know those. I but know the topic that. is yeah, but the topic and the people involved um, are 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 pretty impressive in terms of getting getting their minds around what's going on here. But anyway, the symposium started because uh, literary critic uh, Adam Kirsch, who some of you may know, um, wrote a book recently called The Revolt Against Humanity. And in it, he's sort of taking up that maybe his humanistic commitments um might be challenged enough to think that the most humanistic thing we really could do is be okay with our eventual, if not sooner rather than later, extinction as human, as a species. And so that's really the heart of what the issue is, um, that they're engaging. And there are two strands of ideas that often are contradictory on the surface, but they end up complementing each other. Um, One of these would be something that he calls a, well, let me give you the exact term for it, an Anthropocene anti-humanism. And that really has to do with a kind of humanism that arises once human beings have evolved and become the main species directing the evolutionary ship, if you will. And that group in particular gets hijacked by the environmental movement in its more radical forms and basically is okay with seeing the solution to the problem of the human being, the human being being basically evil, if you will, and has done horrendous harm to the rest of nature and creation, is basically to be okay with its extinction. Um, Not trying to do responsible things to maybe help Foster a healthier, cleaner world, if you will, but eradicating humanity altogether. And then the flip side is the transhumanists who, although they have a different commitment to understanding the human, that is, it isn't about the human creature per se um, that well, let me let me put it a different way. Their problem is that the human being on its rational, conscious side um, is probably the only part about the human that is good. Everything else that limits it is pretty much bad, like the body, like gender and human relationships, and anything that limits us from having absolute control. And so for them, basically basically exterminating our embodied creatureliness and maybe evolving into some kind of new, if not technological species, um, something that transcends the evil limits that our material embodiedness puts on us. So both of these sort of come together as two different strands, but they complement in the sense that they're both about getting rid of the human being and <laughs> extinction. So just with that, before I get into kind of some of the responses, you know, any any thoughts or feedback? Oh, plenty. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Uh, Go for it.
0: <laughs> I, I guess the thing that uh, is re- I, it, remarkable uh, is this is an outgrowth of uh, a movement that lionized the human just not too long ago. In other Mm -hmm. words, human, humanism, um, devoid of any, uh, transcendent, uh, sort of tethering. Um, you know, Mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, we can cut away all of these connections to, uh, the unseen to, uh, heavenly things and so forth. and, and flourish because of that. Now, what we see is that after it's worked itself out a bit, uh, it's kind of a death cult, um, and it just kind of takes different <laughs> forms. Um, you've got, you know, this th- this idea that we're some kind of blight on the world. I mean, it sounds like
1: something straight out of the Matrix. Uh, and, you know, then I I would add two things to this. First of all, anytime anybody suggests something like this to me, my first words are after you. Right, right. (laughs) But along along with that, um, you know, it keeps coming back to critical theory. You know, what, what we're seeing is that the earth is the oppressed class and human beings are the oppressors. Right. And what yeah, we what yeah. we need to know is well, what do you do in decolonization? Well, according to the rhetoric we're getting right now, anything the oppressed does to the colonizers is is legitimate. It's all okay, um, including their extermination. So this death cult, has, you're right, Chris. That's what it comes <clears throat> down to. Um, is an example of critical theory applied to the environment. And it creates this, you know, in, in this form, it creates this um, uh, move toward uh, voluntary human extinction or involuntary as the case may be. Now, th- the interesting thing is there, is there is a middle point between the radical environmentalists and the transhumanists. It's called technogianism. <laughs> and techno technogyanism yeah. isn't about exterminating humanity. What it is about uh, genetically modifying us in such a way that we no longer have as much of an impact on the environment.
0: Yeah, I saw something yeah. not too long ago about yeah. that in, published in The Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually goes back a little ways. I think it was originally published back in like 2012 or something. Yeah, the idea has been around for a while. But it's it's kind of really freaky and and um, startling that, you know the idea would be, well, let's reengineer re-engineer human beings so they're shorter, or let's uh, get you know make <laughs> them sick if they eat meat, things like that. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think this is I, I think you hit you both hit it right on the nose in the sense that this is where. This is eventually where this stuff has to end up. I mean, it's already built, it's already built way back in the, the humanism it grew out of. Um, it, it, I mean, we, we've talked about it a lot. We've talked about the fact when you get rid of a comprehensive vision of the transcendence of God, um, what you do is automatically have to locate the point of reference for an understanding everything important from something else. But nothing else has the capacity to bear that weight, and so the imago dei, the human being made in the image of God, used to hold central significance. That's why you could have humanism in in right. the forms that we had at post Christian, um, and it could carry that weight because it, they they would see that as almost so similar to the deity that it almost was the de- you know the deity. Um, but once you start to allow the you know the 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 impact of transcendence to evaporate then that image of god becomes self-referencing which becomes very problematic and then of course it becomes it becomes a sort of self-hatred because it can't be the deity it wants to be. It isn't omnipotent. It isn't omniscient. And and even though it can do amazing things with technology, it isn't there yet. And on the flip side, it can't control and foster the healing of nature and the problems of nature. And it can't deal with the sin problem on its own. And so you end up with desperation outside of that for some kind of spiritual and then kind of using knowledge (laughs) that we have to fix it but with with no solid reference point and one that keeps shifting and one that keeps blaming our you know sooner or later you can't blame god because god's out of the picture well who's next you
1: know different groups of course but then eventually the whole group yeah actually tom um the you're, you're missing on the solution that is being proposed out there uh, we not may not be omniscient, but AI soon will. Right, right, right. yeah, and that's the, right. <laughs> you know, there, seriously, there are you know, th- there are people who I mean, I think it was Ray Kurzweil was once asked if God existed, and he said not yet. Right. You know, the idea <laughs> is that we are yeah. building God with these these uh, complex computer systems in AI. Um, and, and we've talked about this before. There are some freaky things. We don't actually understand what's going on inside those, the AI programs, but there are people who are looking to that to be the solution to these problems, you know, that we will, you know, we, we can't solve them, but AI is a whole lot smarter and a whole lot faster than we are. And it will be able to do it. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Another concern for me is, you know, is, is pastoral in character, um, you know, one of the things that we deal with uh, as people coming into the fellowship of the church and the worship of the church, uh, very un- uh, unconsciously importing uh, ideas and and affections and, at- and attitudes that are shaped by uh, a, you know a, a larger culture that's explicitly anti-Christian, and rather than uh sort of helping people with you know worldview uh education or with um you know a diagnosis of the of the the larger cultures ills uh, many pastors simply are not up to the task and more or less do what i call culture surf and and what, they, what i mean by that is uh they try to import certain things aspects of the larger cultural cultural moment into the church in the hopes that they can maybe reconcile um, Christian practice and maybe even, you know, the health of the or the growth of their church with certain social trends. Um, and what you end up with is uh, something that becomes more and more obscene with each passing decade, it seems like, uh, in terms of what's going on in the larger evangelical world, there are things that, you know, we're we're all old enough to remember a time when there are certain things that are, you know, sort of become part of the larger evangelical subculture that 20, 30 years ago, no one would have even believed would be possible to reconcile with evangelicalism. And so I wonder about transhumanism and how it relates to this. I, uh, I, I've i actually come across some people who say they're Christians who are uh, essentially trying to, to reconcile transhumanism with the Christian faith.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've even, I have even heard of an orthodox theologian and ethicist arguing that that is the actual vehicle for deification, right? Right, right. right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there are some some real and obvious problems with all of this, um, but the, the thing that I'm, I'm rather surprised to hear that there's an orthodox guy going in this direction. I would expect that from evangelicals, yeah, yeah. Uh, because evangelicals <laughs> tend to be, you know, what what one of the characteristics of evangelicalism that isn't often discussed is that they are very fast to adopt new technologies, especially new communication technologies. And that's one of the ways that they've they've succeeded tremendously in their growth. Um, this, it seems to me is going way beyond communication technology, but this this fascination and obsession with technology that a lot of evangelicals have, it seems to me it would play straight into uh, the hands of of uh, wondering about what we can do with transhumanism or AI or whatever. I'm rather surprised to hear it from the orthodox though because they tend not to go in that direction.
2: Yeah, it's it's yeah, and usually there that again there has been an understanding of creation and and the gift of human nature that that kind of radical alteration is something that allows for the right kind of continuity that I don't think technology can do. Uh, E.L Masquel has this great quote about what both of you are talking about. then evangelicals are very guilty of this. And he talks about the way in which a theology that is more concerned to be contemporary than true will need have neither the right nor the power to influence the contemporary world. All that it can do is win a grudging and contemptuous toleration by the world on the condition that whatever else it does, it does not challenge, the world's assumptions about itself. And I think that is that is one of the damning things that I think we do have to and that's why I want to you know I like to talk about these and we do this show a lot of times is we need to recognize that there are assumptions going on under all of this that aren't only you know simply neutral but they're they're damaging and destructive and they can take root and do unequivocal harm especially in the church.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's just so evident and yet so difficult to, I get, I guess, get people to, to, to understand it at the grassroots level. Um, now let me say this. I think that there are a lot yeah. of grassroots people who do have a real sort of sense that something's wrong. Uh, yeah. but sometimes they feel, uh, awkward, uh, expressing themselves because their leaders, uh, uh, are trying to, uh, you know, sort of get them to accept, uh, maybe a, a new way of, of sort of reconciling things. So an, an example of this would be, uh, the f- infatuation with, uh, you know, critical race theory just here a couple of years ago, just like overnight. And you had, yeah. you know, people like Max Licato and and just others who were just, uh, were essentially flagellating themselves on social media, <laughs> you know, and and essentially uh, uh, adopting these theories uncritically. They it demonstrated first of all that they didn't really have much um, education and philosophy that they could see through all this stuff. Yeah, but you know, when you get the people in the pews and they see their leaders. Uh, you know embracing this stuff uh they they more or less think well I, there must be something wrong with me i mean pastor bob whatever uh you know he's clearly you know better able to understand these things than i am and then they just kind of climb up
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: well that's yeah, the, the that's the telling thing go ahead glenn
1: yeah the 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 thing that i find interesting about this you know just going back to the original dichotomy is in the, in the one case you have people who are valorizing the natural world um, and therefore looking for human extinction to protect it. On the other hand, you have people who are utterly rejecting the natural world and therefore looking to transform yeah. human yeah. beings into something else that will presumably be more ecologically friendly, although I don't know where you're going to get the power to run all the computer servers that are needed in um, the memory and all of that to store all of us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah,
0: that's right. It takes a lot of
2: energy to well, store it's, all of us. It's the, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember uh, Michael Gillespie's famous work on kind of the way in which we get to our modern Uh, bifurcations, if you will. And he talks about the way in which you have the Cartesian line, the angel line, and the Hobbesian beastly, and yet somehow they merge and become two polarities of one common changed metaphysic, nihilistic metaphysic. And I think that's what you're seeing here in just another extreme form. Um, The the writer Nolan Gertz um, of one of the responses to this book um, he wrote a book called Nihilism and Technology, and he has some pretty good evaluation of the problems. And one of his takes against the, you know, the 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 embrace of it, of course, is that it's not just a revolt against humanity; it's a revolt against responsibility. And for him, of course, the you know he's writing in Commonweal, so it, the, who's got to take responsibility is the corporate world. And and he is right that they get off the hook because as soon as they embrace. These visions, they're allowed to get away with whatever they want to, no matter how much harm it does to humanity or the environment, as long as they've got the slogans and they say they're for, you know, these kind of environmental causes. And uh, but I think I think you know what you really see is that it's a revolt against reality, um, and it is the results that you get when you you untether everything from. Proper transcendence. Everything then is in a horrendous competition. You don't have, like Augustine, who understood that to be each created thing is not only to be ordered to transcendence as a gift, but also relational, and that true peace and harmony is what a true flourishing creation is. When it's ordered towards transcendence, Christ, the right way, and here you don't have that solution. You have it's either or, and one has to go, and and it's now the human who has to go. Um, and again, I, I mean, I, I I grant they they you know they can they can follow their philosophies and be martyrs for it, and uh, very few times are they, but there will be people sacrificed to this kind of, and it is a religious. Movement, if you will, it is a way in their mind of addressing some kind of sin against, you know, nature that human beings are somehow complicit in, and their only solution is sacrifice the human being, but not just the one, a group per se, but eventually all of yeah, them. Yeah. Well, I think that you know the point you just made, Tom, about
0: uh, relationships is worth reflecting on a little bit because uh, one of the things that you know, we're getting at is that these, these folks don't seem to think about nature as, uh, as being our our home. (laughs) In other words, we're, we're part of the natural order as well. (laughs) And, and uh, that's right. The, 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 our bodies are are part of it. Uh, You know, we dwell uh, and uh, enjoy many goods because of the bounty of the world that we find ourselves in. Uh, But, you know, this kind of relationship way this way of thinking about this uh, relationally, uh, it, it's drawing obviously on a Christian understanding of you know the the importance of love and and uh, you know how we as creatures are to relate to a to one another and to God and to the natural order. but I really think that a lot of this stuff um, uh, evinces ev cav- ev a a real, uh, radical, uh, rejection of dependency on anything. Um, a, a sense of, uh, complete, uh, prescind- you know, kind of prescinding uh, from any sort of natural order. Um, and, you know, we had Patrick Deneen on a, a few weeks back, you know, kind of the liberal project, uh, it, Pursued a way of thinking about human beings isolated from natural order. Um, you know, so the idea of the social contract is we stand outside of human society and we evaluate it and decide whether or not we want to go in or not. <laughs> you know, it doesn't start with yeah. the fact that you're born into a family, you're born into a community, you're born into a people. You know, that those things. It starts with the individual. Uh, understood, uh, in an, in an entirely unnatural, uh, and abstract way. And I think that's also at work, even in these philosophies that seem to, uh, be, in, you know, uh, advocating, uh, you know, sort of the, the preservation of the natural world.
2: Uh, one of the other responders, you may know the name, uh, Gilbert, uh, My, uh let me get, see if I can pronounce it right. Milander. Yeah, he has written here. quite a bit on bioethics from a Christian perspective. But he had he had a very brilliant response in Commonweal. And first of all, he notes one of the chapters in Kirsch's book called The Sphere of Spiritual Warfare. And he is basically depicting these now as spiritual movements without question. They are religious views. And let's just be honest, all views are religious views. There is no view that isn't ultimately bound up with some notion of how things are and how things are supposed to be and how we get to making them be like they're supposed to be. And this is always beyond the material level because that can only show us certain amounts of things. It doesn't supply that right reference point. And um, and the other thing is is that Mylander's response is pretty fascinating. He goes, from the perspective of either of these two views, um, which seem different but they converge, what is the real problem with the continued existence of our species? And he sums it up in one word, birth. The transhumanists have a vision of virtual human nature that makes it unnecessary, and the anti-humanists hope for a human destiny that will exclude it. And so that fundamental relation that actually develops responsibility for each other and then the environment around us because we're interconnected with it is ripped off from the get-go and then you do have this kind of a notion of the human being as severable from its it's not only its production but its reproduction and connectedness to everything so they are not dealing with humanity in reality as you mentioned yeah well this
0: antinatal, uh, um, uh, tone, um, that is evident in what you just said, obviously we can see connections to abortion, um, euthanasia, um, to, you know, even contraception, this, this sense that, um, uh, that a child is an unwelcome, um, liability that keeps me from, um, uh, my dreams of self and grandizement, or something
1: yeah, I, I think the the antenatal thing is one of the remarkable features of our culture. Um, when When you look across the board at Western cultures, we are reproducing it well below the replacement rate. and the 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 question is why? And some of it is, you know, I've heard some of it directly connected to ecology. You know, I I don't want to produce another carbon-producing child. Um, You know, I've heard some things along those lines. But I think a lot of it is also tied up with a loss of hope. That our culture really offers nothing by way of hope or a positive vision of anything. And when you lack hope, you lack motivation to... Well, to have children, yeah, I think that's right, Glenn. Yeah I think uh,
0: you know it's also connected to faith. I mean all three of the mm. uh, theological virtues, love. I mean when you no longer believe in God, um, it's awfully hard to believe in anything else. Uh, the future, for example, uh, you know whether or not making sacrifices for other people are worth it, uh, those sorts of things you lose you lose faith in and i think you know you can look at it as two sides of a coin yes uh, people are more selfish than they were but one of the reasons they're more selfish than they were is because they can't sort of see why making sacrifices uh is uh worthwhile or why um investing in the future is worthwhile and and everything becomes kind of a get as much as you can out of the moment you know eat drink and be married for tomorrow we die that's that's the the framework within which much of the world now is is working and if it were exclusively a western problem uh you know it, that'd be bad <laughs> enough but it's everywhere it, with the exception of sub-saharan africa as it looks like and um you know i was looking at a documentary here a couple of days ago about italy Illy is, uh, in, you know, really bad. Uh, I saw something like six thousand villages uh, have essentially shut down; they become ghost towns. Um, and we're seeing that in
1: Japan. We're seeing that in South Korea. Um, it's specifically it like the industrialized a, world. It, it's yeah. not necessarily all over, but it's in the industrialized world that is certainly the case. But it's what's what's fascinating to me is that, in spite of all of this, in
0: spite of the growing uh, in a sense of impending collapse, there are people who are still sort of desperately clinging to their right to kill their unborn child. Uh, there's still this yeah. uh, inability to see that the household as an institution needs to be recovered. Um, we're still fixated on making certain that everybody can have their you know, whatever they, you know, a, a gratification that they could possibly want, whether it's sexual or vocational in character. Uh, there's no sense that there is uh, any legitimacy, even at this point, to some kind of authority saying, you know what, you need to uh, get your house in order. You need to have some kids. I mean, it, there's n- nobody can say that in public. Even at this point. I mean, how long is it going to have to go before that that is something that people are able to hear?
2: Well, that's kind of one of the things that uh, Mylander is is hitting on in in his response. And he uh, he hits on Glenn's point as well with the issue of of hope. And he says, uh, he puts it this way, he goes, given that that sort of commitment to human life is embodied life, as Christians do, we should think that the body is, is integral, to, integral to who we are, not just a prosthesis used uh, by our real disembodied self. We can then come to appreciate the way in which an embodied life is also an embedded life. And this is what you're getting at with family and those inner connections embedded in a series of relationships um, that involve both coming into being and going out of being. Having a beginning, middle, and end. Our lives take a narrative shape that is more than just a succession of bare momentary presence. After all, even without the transhumanist dream of virtual existence, a de- desire to overcome the short um, lived structure of our human body can threaten to make nonsense of life. In other words, the wrong kind of hope c- can basically tear into things and rip everything out of it which is central to it. And I, I think that part of embedding is so key here that we uh, to be embodied is to be embedded. And to be embedded is to be in that rich fabric of transcendently grounded and founded and oriented relationships that point to a aspect of our relationship to things that transcends the the contemporary, the immediate, the gratificatory towards our orientation, towards hope and continuance and resurrection. Yeah, you got to have transcendence
0: for that to make
2: sense. (laughs) Transcendence
0: (laughs) (laughs) in the sense that there is a God who transcends the world, but also that we have a future that transcends the world in the resurrection uh, and this and and what i mean by transcends the yeah. world is not that the resurrection is disembodied but that, but that 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 but That's that true. there is a new heaven new earth you know there is something out there that we are uh, anticipating and ho- and
1: longing for yeah the other the, the other thing i mean i'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about the issue of why people don't have children. Um, we've we've got, um, you know, we've got the hope issue. We do have people who've got ecological concerns. You know, I don't want to produce another, um, you know, another consumer. Um, but the other thing is, um, I've got to describe it as sheer selfishness. You know, I, I want to do all of these things, I want to have all of these things and I want to get these things in place and then I'll think about I'll think about having a family. You know, uh, I don't think any of them quite realize that it doesn't really work that way in real life. It, it's very hard to pull that one off. But all, all of this points to, I think, something deeper and that's that, you know, it's not, you know, even the selfishness side of it, I would argue it's fundamentally anchored in a worldview that doesn't see beyond the present that doesn't have any again doesn't have any kind of hope doesn't have any um any kind of positive eschatological vision um It's no accident maybe yeah. that dystopian novels and movies were so popular, right right.
2: Yeah. Well, it's interesting on that point because uh, Mylander puts it this way, embodied life has a shape and that is memory and anticipation, right? And so that's the aspect of it. If you are not embracing the gift of embodiedness um, and related to it the right way, then the whole aspect of how you're connected to the past, um, present and future is, is completely ripped out of it. And it becomes it becomes flat. Um, you have some that are stuck in the past completely, but most now kind of stuck in something they consider to be the present. Um, and they, they're presentists. They don't see anything outside of that, the determinations of this moment as if they're final, as if they're fate. And they don't, you know, they, so they don't have that, you know, what we would call eschatological hope that there is there is a breaking through the the uh, you know the, the mirror darkly that we're presently in um, to where we will begin to we will begin to see the fuller vision that makes sense of all of this memory and embeddedness, and not in a way that negates it, that actually fulfills it, and that's a fundamentally different disposition than trying to escape it, war against it, hate it, and uh, want to eliminate it.
0: Yeah, there are given purposes, and these are things that should be received as gifts. But if you uh, suspect that the giver is up to no good, then uh, you resent them. (laughs) Uh, And that's the nature of the temptation in the the garden, right? So what you have is the serpent accuses, the serpent is the accuser, Uh, Satan, you know, means the adversary or the accuser. Um, We see in Job, you know, he saunters into the royal, sort of the court in there, you know, among the courtiers, the Lord says, well, where have you been? And, you know, then we go on from there. Uh, In that particular episode, you know, he accuses Job uh, before uh, the Lord, and the Lord defends Job's integrity. Uh and and then the accuser says, Well, let me prove my point. <laughs> and then that leads to what we know as the book of Job. But in the garden, who is the who is the target of the accusation? It's the Lord. Um and it's yeah. intended to uh create a rift uh between the creature and the creator, and it succeeds. Um what you have is, you know, they They, the doubts rise in their mind. Maybe, maybe the Lord, uh, isn't trustworthy. Uh, maybe we need to take matters into our own hands. Uh, the, the the prospect that knowledge is the means by which we can create a better future for ourselves, uh, without the Lord. Um, is uh, what the grasping of the fruit is all about. I deal with this all the time as a pastor <laughs> when people uh, rail against <laughs> yeah. their given purposes, you know, uh, even at yeah. the most fundamental level of male and female, um, then what you're actually dealing yeah. with is re- is a, a, an inability to believe that the given purposes uh, are good because there's no faith that
1: the giver is good. Yeah, and and the sense is that what I want is what is ultimately the most important thing. Um, A great example of this is a day or two ago, Megan Rapinoe uh, blew her Achilles uh, tendon, I guess, uh, in a game. And she said that this was proof that God does not exist. Because if God existed, He would not have allowed this to happen.
0: <laughs> well, Megan, you know, maybe maybe He's trying to get your attention because you're such a jerk.
1: <laughs> well, you know, but 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 that that is the same tendency writ large that we're talking about here. Yeah. That. We we rail yep. against the purposes God has for us, because if if God were really good, he would make things the way I want them to be. Right.
2: Yeah, all the time. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it is, again, it is that, like uh, Chris was hitting on it too. I mean, what, what is the big rail? It's finitude. You know, we're a creature, and that is the big thing Satan doesn't like. And that is the thing Satan gets us not to like, right? You know, why can't you be God? Why shouldn't you be the center of all things, mm-hmm. you know? After all, you know, God just doesn't want you to be like him, basically. And that's the thing, is that the embrace of our finitude, that limit, and that is on the transhumanist side in particular. The, the, the other side kind of is a, just a, an outright despising of it um, altogether, but the transhumanist side is that, you know, and so therefore they have built into it. Why take the risk of having children? Um, why do that? Because on the one hand, we risk making things worse for the world. On the other side, we are using up resources that are limited, right? There is no trust in any providing God and providence um, and then there is the, you know, the despising of the image of God. And I think there is something there. I think there is a, for all the self-love twisted in on itself, it's really a self-hatred um, because it is it is always reminded that it isn't the God that it thinks it is. And because creatures can't be God, um, therefore they resist the real way to being being like God through Christ and being transformed and made immortal, and yet, one that takes their finitude and brings it up into eternity. Um, right. And they skip right over that as, oh, that's just fantasy and everything else, unless we do it, unless we build that Tower of Babel ourselves. Correct. So there is just this locking in on us having to be God. Yeah.
0: I think this is one of the things about you know the nature of the temptation in the garden that gets elided, Uh because we when we talk about uh, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, we focus on the the evil uh, in the t- in the title <laughs> you know in the name of the fruit and and lose sight yeah. of good and knowledge. And I think knowledge is a thing that uh, needs to be appropriately uh, assessed. So what do we mean by knowledge? Well, in the world that we live in today, Knowledge has gotten divorced from wisdom because knowledge is not about conforming to the to the world as it is, which is what wisdom uh, is uh, addressing. Uh, seeking, you know, what, what we what we are uh, trying to do if we're wise is conform to reality as it is, as opposed to um, trying to make the world reflect our wishes uh but w- knowledge promises that uh we can make the world as we wish uh you know we've talked about baconian you know knowledge is power that's that's what you know baconian science uh it, is all about it it strikes me is that it is the forbidden fruit um now does that mean that everything that, that's derived from science is bad no of course not but I'm but but the thing we we should be wondering about is why? What is our impulse? What is it we're trying to accomplish? There's always a kind of a wedge issue, you know. Like we we want to just make life easier. We want to, you know, uh, address um, some problem. You know, um, for example, I, I just did a piece for World Magazine, an editorial for them, responding to a um, article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, it was entitled, What If Men Could Make Their Own Eggs? And basically, the gist of it <laughs> is uh, that bioengineers really are looking to make women obsolete. Um, what they are up to is creating uh, eggs from skin cells, and they've actually accomplished it with male mice. So there, there are <laughs> mice now that that have been bioengineered uh, that uh, never had... Uh, A female uh, participate in the process of fertilization. Uh, So there are uh, scientists who are working on making it possible for two homosexual men to have a child uh, without uh, a woman involved at all. And of course, artificial wombs are also uh, uh, and artificial uteruses are also part of the project.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, the, which I imagine will become extra bodily in due time, like the old sci-fi. Well, that's
0: exactly um, a, ahead, so it. So it is a bag. They they have been doing they they've
1: been able to yeah. do it for a while with sheep and stuff, right? Yeah. Um, on the ecology thing, I was reminded of um, of Genesis two, where uh, Adam is placed in the garden to tend and protect it. Now, people ask well what what does he have to protect it from, and a lot of people say the answer is satan uh, i don't think that's quite right. that may be part of it, but I think he has to protect it from himself um hmm. that that what that is is a mandate that you're you are to tend the garden, but you're to do it in a way that preserves it and protects it, that doesn't exploit it, that yeah. doesn't destroy it um and, th- and if we kept that balance in mind, the problem is, you know, the ecologists want to leave everything absolutely pristine. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's not tending the garden. And the problem with keeping it absolutely yeah. pristine is you get out of control wildfires. You know, yeah. and, and the, the mechanism for that is well understood, but nobody wants to talk about it because it violates ecological dogma and climate change arguments. Right. But it's really it's just yeah. because the forests have not been maintained correctly. Um, but the other side of it is you don't want to do strip mining either. Right. You know, we're 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 supposed to develop the resources, but to develop them in a way that doesn't destroy the world. And the fun thing and, to think of- and that balance is is something that I haven't seen too many people trying to understand how you make that work.
0: I think Tolkien tried with the ants. Yep. Because yep. you know what you have with the ants yeah. is the is essentially the male ants are the uh, earth firsters who don't want to touch anything. Uh, in other words, you you should only eat fruit that has fallen to the ground on its own. I mean, there actually is. If you look at the, you know those chapters on Treebeard and so forth, that's exactly what's been is stated by Treebeard as he's describing the difference between the ant wives and the ants. So the ant wives uh he says they what they wanted is they wanted things to stay where they put them <laughs> so they you know the the ant wives are all <laughs> about order and fruitfulness and they like the smaller trees they they like the domesticated uh uh you know um vegetation and men learn farming from the ant wives if you remember in the story mm-hmm. and there's a parting of the ways uh that's why you know there are no more ants because <laughs> the things. ants and the <laughs> ant wives have gone their separate ways and the ant wives are lost they don't know where they went and
1: yeah. um <laughs> i suspect they're in the north of the shire that's right i remember you, you your theory <laughs> yeah but um yeah the the interesting thing about that is it, it, it john Eldritch, in a book i don't entirely recommend called wild at heart points out that men are created in a wilderness and women are created in a garden. I think that there's something (laughs) to
0: that. And I think that's what, you know, uh, Tolkien's picking up on.
1: The the ants and the ant wives are certainly an example of that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what you, what you do get there though, is a very rich embeddedness um, and different ways of relating to it, which Mm -hmm. are, 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 are ways that are healthy. Um, You know, I mean, I'll I'll give examples. When I lived in England and UK, the English folks are masters at the garden. And one Mm -hmm. thing that you will see when you go over there is some of those English gardens are incredible. Some of them are very well crafted and beautiful. They're not, tearing things up and ripping them up and then just supplanting and crushing everything. They're allowing them to grow in connected ways that are beautifully arranged and allow that beauty to radiate in phenomenal ways. But then you also get the wild church garden (laughs) that is kind of uh, poppies and things flown up all over the place, yet still demonstrate that richness, embeddedness and beauty in a whole different way. And, and, And both of these have been places where things have been cared for in different ways, but cared enough for to preserve, in one case, the more wild gardens, but the day-to-day catering to those other kinds. And and I think there is something in this. This is where in these uh, different essays, they're talking about the responsibility we have. Why do we go to revolt, rejection, when we can talk about healthy ways of, of our embeddedness and, and connectedness to these things that, so that we don't take our sin and, and basically steamroll things that doesn't take their created integrity to account, but actually allows flourishing to happen, which we have learned how to do on many occasions.
0: This reminds me of a distinction I heard one time between French gardens and English gardens, French gardens, you see sort of the model at Versailles. Where everything is sort of geometric in character, yeah. very much uh, kind of the imposition of pure f- sort of geometry on the natural world as much as possible. And yeah. then the English being something that's more sort of in keeping with working with the natural tendencies of things. I think John Ruskin um, actually wrote a little bit about that. But anyway, I'm not an authority yeah. on gardens. It just I just remember coming across something about that.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you could definitely see in, in France a different approach. Glenn could probably talk to that more than, than I
1: could. <laughs> no. Actually, I have a friend who grew up in Scotland and she married an American and they created an absolutely beautiful, beautiful garden at, at uh, the guy's home. It's a terraced area going down into a lake. And yeah, I mean, there there is a sense of um, how to do that over there that we don't really have over here much. Um, you know, this is an example, though, I think, you know, of Christians. I, I've said this before. I, th- I think we need a different sort of apologetic. Um, we need an apologetic that isn't quite based so much on reason uh, because we've got a generation that doesn't believe in it but what we've got is a better story you know if the alternative is various forms of human extinction my answer is who dealt this deck i mean yeah. we we have we have better options we have a better story we just need to be better at communicating it and implementing it because the fact of the matter is Neither of those options really offer, I mean the the transhumanist claims he's offering hope, but really isn't. Neither of those options give us anything that really allows for human flourishing in a um, in an environmentally responsible way. And yet the Christian story gives us the the means to do that. We, Like I said, we do have to be much better at implementing it. But this is the kind of thing I think we need to be proclaiming as an apologetic for uh, for what we're doing, you know, for, for the faith and for uh, building real communities, building deep relationships, and approaching the environment in a responsible way. Yeah, along these lines, we just had Joel Salatin
0: at my church for a conference. And uh, if folks aren't familiar with Joel— uh, he has a farm uh, in Virginia called Polyface Farm. He raises uh, cattle and pigs and, and chickens and so forth. And but anyway, he's a more or less a, a big figure in the world of uh, you know family farming and recovering a more you know sort of earth friendly approach to doing things. It's made him a controversial figure, particularly amongst industrial farmers, people who you know are engaged in vast monoculture approaches to, to farming. But, uh, what was fascinating is, you know, getting to your point, Glenn, uh, here we are in the Portland area. And so we had this event and it drew a wide range of people. I mean, uh, we had some far lefties. Uh, we had people with Trump hats on. (laughs) It was, it was one of these wild (laughs) environments where all these different people are in the same room and Joel is a is a graduate of Bob Jones, for goodness sake, uh, and is uh, you know pretty much a fundamentalist <laughs> <Wow>. Baptist. <laughs> and uh, but he's making the case uh, through the course of the event that there is a an order to things, and that we should work with the order. Rather than try to impose order on things as though there is no sort of intrinsic meaning or intrinsic structure. So kind yeah. of just study the way things yeah. work and then work with those things rather than you know, just sort of say, uh, you know, we're gonna just uh, just uh, come in and uh, shred everything uh, until it gets to the place that we think it should be.
1: It reminds me of what I've heard good wood carvers say. Yeah. You yeah. Know, you know, that, that you work with the wood, you don't work against it. What does the wood tell you it can do? Right. Or or what is the shape that is in it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that the, um,
2: the one of the points uh, that one of these articles had put put earlier, and it talks about responsibility, is that a lot of times the anti-humanists and the transhumanists, it, they they basically lump all of the whole the whole species, all all human beings, as guilty of what sometimes some of the worst human beings have done, right? And if you look at it from maybe the corporate level where it's just about money, more power, more money, more power, more money, and there's no concern for much else, they tend to then turn around and blame everyone or one group of people, um, those who happen to have been the majority for some time or exercise some symbolic power, over you know, a significant amount of time, they become all guilty, and their whole religion and their whole faith,, um, you know, is tied up with that exploitation of what some did or 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 a misinter- you know just a bad interpretation of things yeah this, um resulted in
0: this is kind of fun to think about because Joel actually uh, debated Peter Singer and oh, so, really. yeah, so Joel was in Australia and uh you know singer i guess is living there now even though he's still connected to princeton and uh apparently singer didn't do any research on joel he just showed up expecting him to be a certain thing and joel blew him away blew him out of the water (sighs) because of what you just said um singer was treating him as though he were this caricature of the Christian, uh, understanding, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of Lynn white junior exploiter of nature kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, by yeah. the time, uh, that apparently it, the, the debate was done, it, you know, Singer was having to kind of backtrack on stuff, having to, you know, sort of rethink his, uh, his whole approach because Joel wasn't what he had assumed he would going to be.
1: I would love to see that video.
0: <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll i should get it yeah i should get it because i can i can probably get it uh you know joel and i actually uh, developed a pretty good connection while he was here
2: yeah that's it may great.
1: even be up on youtube i'll just have to look for it yeah yeah
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's great um well I, you know I tell we're, we're getting close to the end. There is a good little, uh, let me see if I can remember how to pronounce her name right. I, this is, I believe, a French name. Uh, Madeline Langle? Is that how oh, you yeah, pronounce Madeline Oh yeah, Madeleine um, not a Yep. She has a, a, b- uh, a little uh, poem she wrote that uh, Mylander puts uh, quotes at the end. It's called The Risk of Birth. And I oh. think it is beautifully expressive of what, what the answer is. She starts with, there is no time for a child to be born with the earth betrayed by war and hate and a comet slashing the sky to warn that time runs out and the sun burns late. That was no time for a child to be born in a land in the crushing grip of Rome, honor and truth were trampled to scorn, yet here did the savior make his home. When is the time for love to be born? The inn is full on the planet earth and by a comet the sky is torn yet love still makes the risk of birth and i think the incarnation and everything built up with in the midst of all the brokenness and the pain love taking taking on hum, you know f- human flesh dwelling among us and bringing us back to a proper relationship with the creator and the order of things is that fulfillment of our narrative oriented towards hope that we are structured for it and it isn't about eradicating ourselves. And so with that is the hope to continue having children and to continue having families and find out what proper embeddedness means and indwelling it from our connectedness to the God of all hope who has brought it all about is perfecting it. Well,
0: that's great. That's a great note to end on. Matt and of course, uh, wrote Wrinkle in Time. And so, If you've you've enjoyed, say, C.S. Lewis's writing for kids, uh, you probably like Lengel as well. Mm. She actually was in Connecticut uh, for much of her life. Anyway, thank you for listening to Uh. the Theology Pugcast. It's been great to have you here for this episode. And uh, to sort of wrap things up, just want to remind you that we have uh, a Patreon account, and we've had a a few people join here recently. We're glad for that. The numbers are growing there, and that's uh, much appreciated. Uh, If you'd like to become a a supporter of the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, You get to see the podcast episodes uh, a few days before they're available to everybody else. Um, We have other ways to show our appreciation for your your ongoing support. Uh, So if you uh, would like to do that, uh, you can find the link in the show notes. Anyway, I guess that's enough for now. Uh, Thanks a lot again, and bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.
2: The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality,
1: available on Amazon.